Today we are going to begin a series where we're thinking together about this idea of armoring up. Before we get into that, let me talk to you for just a couple of minutes about all that has been happening over the last 10 days in the country of Ukraine. Um, I know that all of the world, and I'm confident all of us in this room today and all of you watching online, have been equally with the rest of the world both incensed and really in a way inspired by what we've seen happening in the country of Ukraine. I mean, certainly we've been incensed by the unprovoked invasion of the huge nation of Russia on its neighbor, Ukraine. And the plans of Vladimir Putin to take that country and to sack it completely and to acquire it back as part of the Soviet Union. We've seen the atrocities that have come along with that. We've seen it all over the news for the last 10 days, the shelling of, of homes and apartment buildings and uh, community centers. Uh, you may have seen the horrific footage of a Russian tank swerving to run over in an effort to kill a civilian who was trying to flee uh, the particular city. It, it's been honestly infuriating and heartbreaking as the world has simply watched this happen. I think you'll agree with me, though, that we've also been inspired by what we've seen from the Ukrainian people, by their resolve and their determination and their patriotism to fight for their nation. I've been particularly um, inspired and really admiring the courage and the leadership of President Vladimir Zelensky, uh, how that he has remained in theater, he has remained in the country and leading the nation and even leading troops and fighting with the troops. He could have easily fled the country and yet he has stayed there. He has called the men of Ukraine uh, between the ages of 18 and 60 and said to them, you can't leave. Uh, you need to stay and fight. Amen. Stay and fight for your land. I've been so inspired and impressed by that. Civilians doing all that they can. They don't have the weaponry that the Russians have to be sure. Not even close. Not even with all of the support that's been pouring in from multiple nations and giving them arms and, and weaponry. They, they, it literally is a David against Goliath fight. And yet they are doing all that they can uh, with a little David's sling to stand. And, and so the entire nation has been armoring up. They, they, have, they have understood that the battle has been engaged and now it's coming to Kiev, the capital, and, and they have armored up. And for us, I mean, listen, this is, this is not an illustration, right? This is not a story. This is real life and people are hurting and dying and families are being separated and it's horrific. But for us, it really is a timely illustration that we need to armor up, that we need to be prepared for the battles that we face in life. And this is what we're talking about in the coming weeks as we study Ephesians chapter number six. Now, before we get into the text that you've opened to today, I do want to say a couple of things about what's happening in the Ukraine that we should understand, okay? Not what's, what I've just mentioned about the inspiration and their patriotism, but, but a couple of things I want to say to you. One is... I know that there's a lot of fear in the land right now. And perhaps some of your children 
are hearing things on the news and in the classroom and and they're expressing some fear to you. And maybe you're feeling a lot of fear. There's been a lot of talk on the news about how this thing might escalate, right? And, and how, you know, there's been talk about World War III and, and nuclear conflict and, and an unwinnable thermonuclear war. And so there's a lot of people that are afraid and fearful that's going to happen. And so here's, I just want to say to you that our God is sovereign, not only over your life, but he's sovereign over the affairs of the nations. Nothing is going to happen in this world that he does not allow to happen and that he will use for his glory. So trust him. Don't be afraid. Don't go to sleep afraid at night. Tell your children they can trust in our great God, that he is in control. And as I read the scriptures, it it seems clear to me that there is a lot that has to happen in this world. There's not going to be a nuclear holocaust this week. There's a lot that's got to happen in this world uh, for it to be blown up, all right? So trust in the Lord. Rest in him. Number two, be certain that you are praying for the people of Ukraine. We can support them in a number of ways, but one of the ways, the greatest way that we can support them is with prayer, that we would cover them in prayer and particularly that we would pray for the church in Ukraine. We have brothers and sisters who are suffering and and, and brothers and sisters in the church of Ukraine who need our prayer support right now, that the church would be the church and that in this very difficult time that the church would hold forth the hope of the gospel. Pray for Ukraine. And then thirdly and lastly about this I want to say to you is that I would suggest that these could be some of the events that would be the next steps to an end time war that the Bible describes in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, I want to say something really carefully, and I want to make sure you don't misunderstand me. Okay, so if you're listening, say amen. Don't miss this. I did not just say that what's happening in the Ukraine is the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's not. But I do believe that it could be next steps in the formation, in the world climate, in the, in the formation of that coalition of nations that will do battle as described in Ezekiel 38 and 19. And if you're not familiar with that and you haven't read it, I would encourage you to go and read it and we'll, we'll try to talk about it as things unfold um, more. It's not the battle of, of, that, of those two chapters, but certainly the interests of the nations mentioned there are aligning. And so I would just say to you that Jesus could come for his church at any moment. And I want you to be ready. And so just, I want to implore you. I want to look into every one of your eyes and those of you online. And I want to say to you, do you know Jesus? Are you certain that you are in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? That he is your savior because he could come at any moment. And as surely, as surely as he came 2,000 years ago and died and rose, he is coming again. And he could come at any moment. You need to be ready. And even if you know Jesus, are you ready? Are you living for him? Are you, are you spending all of your time and energy on things that after he returns will not matter at all? Or are you 
investing your life and your passion and your energy in the kingdom of God. I hope you are. Be ready until he comes. While we wait for his appearing, while we wait for him, him to come, we need to be making sure that we are standing firm in our faith. And this is what we're going to be talking about in these coming weeks. As we're thinking about armor up, standing firm in life's battles. Now listen, all of us know that we face battles in life, don't we? We all do. Every person, every family faces battles. And our battles are not with missiles and tanks and armored personnel carriers. But our battles are, are just as real in terms of, in terms of the, the presence and the place that they play in our lives. I don't mean to say we're dying from them, but I mean that they're very real issues and struggles that all of us face. Sometimes we face internal battles. They're battles within the soul. Battles with temptation when the temptation of the world, the tempter comes to us and seeks to draw our faith away or, or draw our hearts away from the Lord. That's a very real battle in our lives. And we don't always win that battle. Sometimes we struggle and we stumble and, and we fall. Sometimes doubts assail us and, 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 the, and the liar, the doubter, causes us to, to begin to doubt the veracity of God's word or the reality of eternity or, or the truth of the gospel. And we have doubts that arise and we battle with those things. They're real. Sometimes we have battles that are not internal, they're external, but they're, they're very close. They're not far away. In fact, they're they're as close as it gets. They're relational battles. Sometimes we, we battle in our marriages. Our marriages struggle and, and life is hard and, and it's complex and, and there are difficulties that arise. And sometimes our marriages, they fail. Some, sometimes we fail in our marriage commitments. Our marriages often battle. We have battles in our in our families, not in our marriage maybe, but with, with sons or daughters, with adult children. And sometimes those relationships are strained or we're estranged from them. You know, it's one thing when our children are two years old and they're coloring on the wall or pitching temper tantrums. It's like, you know, that seems really hard in the moment, but that's not the hardest part of parenting, I want to promise you. If you've, if you've raised them beyond two years old, you know that. Tracy and I were flying home from Israel uh, on uh, Friday, Thursday night, and, and right next to us on the plane, there was a, a, a dad, an Israeli man with his two-year-old daughter. No, no mom, I don't know what the situation was, but it was dad and daughter sitting right there. And this little girl, bless her heart, <laughs> she's having a hard time. I mean, she squalled, she fought, she kicked, she screamed. She, she threw a temper tantrum for hours. As we were landing in Newark, I said to Tracy, that's a precious baby while she's sleeping. <laughs> this poor daddy, he was fighting a, an epic royal battle for all of that 12-hour flight except the moments that she was sleeping. And, uh, and Tracy leaned over one point and said, you know, he thinks, you could tell he was struggling. He was looking around and it was hard. And Tracy said, he thinks this is the hardest part of parenting. He doesn't have any idea. <laughs> this is the easy stuff. But we, we do. We have these battles. You know, our kids grow up. They start making adult decisions, and sometimes they're not good decisions. And that creates a, a battle, a struggle 
in our lives. Sometimes we have physical battles, sickness or disease, or we lose someone that we love, and so it's a battle with grief. Sometimes we have a battle on the, on the job site or in the workplace. You're going to go to work tomorrow, you know what? You're going to face some battles. You're, you're going to need to maintain your Christian testimony and your integrity in the marketplace. You're, you're going to need to live a life as a follower of Jesus that brings him honor in a place where maybe nobody else is. You go to the classroom, you go to the high school campus or the middle school campus. Are you going to live for Jesus? You're going to fight that battle. So here's the thing. Those are real battles and there are a thousand others. And some of us would say we're living in that fight right now. That's a very real battle that we're facing right now. Well, here's what I want you to know. That in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul would say to you that every battle you face is a spiritual battle. Every battle. Now, it might be relational, it might be in your marriage, it might be uh, with, with a lot of things, but behind it all, ultimately, Paul says, your battle, my battles, these are spiritual battles. And because they are spiritual battles, we must be properly suited if we're going to win the battle. And so this is what we're going to talk about over the next six weeks. We're going to talk about standing firm in the battles of life. Let me read this passage to you, only nine verses, beginning in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, But we wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, as a result of that, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Paul would say, every battle is a spiritual battle, so you need to armor up. Now, before we dive into this passage, let me begin by giving you a bit of cultural context and helping you understand a bit about the city of Ephesus where the church of Ephesus was, how the church came to Ephesus, or how Christianity came to Ephesus, and finally, what Paul's letter is all about. Let me give you just a bit about the city of Ephesus to begin with. During the first century, the city of Ephesus was a bustling port city in the Roman Empire. It's located, you can still visit its ruins today, it is located on the shore of modern-day Turkey, of Asia Minor. And in the first century, this was a bustling and busy, very um, 
a cosmopolitan, very international city. It was located along the coast. It was along the trade routes. And so many, many people coming and going would pass through the town or the city of Ephesus. It was the largest, uh, I should say, the second largest city in all of the Roman Empire. It had a population of about a quarter of a million people, which in those days was an incredibly large city, second only to Rome itself, which was nearly a million. But Ephesus was a large city in its own right. Because of its size and because of its location and because of the, of the uh, transfer of people coming and going, this was a center of commerce, a center of wealth, of culture, and even of cultic worship. And Ephesus boasted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was where this cultic worship would happen. It was the beautiful, vast temple of the Greek goddess Diana. And from all over the empire, pilgrims would come and they would worship Diana in the temple at Ephesus. It also hosted another wonder, not one of the seven, but I would call it one of the wonders of the ancient world, and that was its vast and expansive theater, the Roman theater of Ephesus. Now, Rome was famous for building theaters in all of the cities throughout the empire. You're familiar with the Colosseum in Rome. Um, These theaters would be built uh, all throughout the empire. And it was in these theaters that very often you would have dramatic plays that would be presented. Um, You would also have the games that would happen there, the gladiator games, uh, fights between men, fights between men and beasts. You're familiar perhaps with with Caesar's uh, uh, let him live or, or he must die in the gladiator games. Well, these games would take place in the Colosseum in Rome, but really throughout the empire in many of these theaters. Now, for those who were with, it, with me in Israel last week, we visited two impressive Roman theaters. The first one was in Caesarea. We brought a picture of it today. This is the theater that's along the Mediterranean coast in the city of Caesarea. This was the, the, the capital of the Roman Empire in the Holy Land uh, in the first century. That's an impressive structure. It'll seat about 4,000 people. And we visit it when we travel there for one reason, not because it's an impressive structure. I mean, that's part of it. But the more important thing for us is that it's in this very theater where the Apostle Paul stood, as recorded in Acts 26, and defended the gospel in front of King Agrippa. It was here that King Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Pretty awesome to be there. But that that theater is in Caesarea. We were there just a, a week or so ago. There's a second theater that we visit on our tours to Israel. It's the second one, which is in Bethshane, which is a little further south in the land of Israel, near the Galilee. But um, this theater is about twice the size of the one in Caesarea. The town of Bethshane was bigger, needed a larger theater, and so this one uh, will seat about 9,000 people. We were there last Saturday. By the way, the acoustics in these theaters are amazing. They didn't have sound systems. They didn't wear microphones like I've got today. And so they had to be built in such a way that the the, the acoustics would carry the sound. And you can stand on that platform in front of 9,000 seats and you can speak with a loud voice in every seat in the place. Every person can hear you. 
We always illustrate this when we're in this particular theater by Tracy. I'll send Tracy down to the platform. Last Saturday, she stood on that platform and she sang and all of us in the theater could hear her sing. We were up at the top and we could hear her sing. Now, there weren't 9,000 of us. There were about 40 of us, but we could hear her singing. It was beautiful. Well, that's the Caesarea Theater and then the Beit Shan Theater. I want to give you a little bit of, show you those to give you the perspective of the theater in Ephesus. Look at it. Here it is. Isn't that amazing? This theater in Ephesus, because it was such a large and impressive city, it would hold some 25 to 30,000 people. And this theater actually predates the Romans. It was built by the Greeks and then taken over by the Romans, of course. But this theater still stands today in Ephesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, while Paul is ministering in the city of Ephesus, the opposition to his preaching of the gospel is so strong that the Bible records in Acts 19 how that theater filled up. People came rushing from the city into the theater. They filled it 30,000 strong. And Acts 19 says for two hours, they chanted, great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is the spiritual depravity of that city. It's the paganism of that city. Can you imagine two hours, 25, 30,000 people chanting the greatness and the praise and the celebration of a Greek goddess? For all of its culture and for all of its commerce and for all of its wealth, Ephesus was a spiritually dark city. The book of Acts, the book of Ephesians, both teach us about the demonism in Ephesus, about demon-possessed people, about exorcists who would exorcise or would call out demons from people. The book of Acts talks about practitioners of dark magic who lived in Ephesus, about palm readers and soothsayers and fortune tellers that lined the streets in Ephesus. I mentioned the temple to Diana, which was a place of cultic prostitution where worshipers, pagan worshipers would come and engage in lewd worship of Diana through sexual acts. The city was filled with brothels. It was a dark and dirty place. And Paul came there to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul came in Acts chapter 18 on his second missionary journey. Just briefly, he came to Ephesus and he left Aquila and Priscilla there while he moved on to other places. But then he circled back around on his third missionary journey and he planted himself in Ephesus for three and a half years. And the apostle Paul established a thriving and a, and a strong witness for Christ in the city of Ephesus in the church there. That was around AD 62 that he brought the gospel, AD 52, I should say, that he brought the gospel. And about 10 years later, while Paul is in Rome in prison, he writes a letter to that church in Ephesus, which you have opened to today, which is the book of Ephesians. He wrote this book, this letter, back to them to encourage them in their faith. 
This book is divided into six chapters, as you know, and it outlines nicely. If you're outlining the book, you could divide it right down the middle. The first three chapters form one portion of the book. The last three chapters form the last portion of the book. In the first three chapters, you have a description of the person and work of Christ and his redemption of us. And in the second three, the final three chapters, you have our response, what should be our response to his redemption. So we would say it this way. If I'm outlining the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are theological. The last three chapters are are practical. Or we would say in the first three chapters, you have redemption explained. In the final three chapters, you have redemption applied. And our text that we read just a few minutes ago in verse number 10 begins with the word finally. And so we recognize when we read that word that we're jumping into the middle or we're jumping into a part where Paul has already been giving some instructions on how to live out this Christian life. In fact, it begins in chapter 4, verse 1. And from chapter 4, verse 1 until chapter 6, verse 10, he has already given them at least 20 very specific commands about how to live as a redeemed person, about our lifestyle, about our family relationships, about our marriages, about how we raise our kids, about our work ethic. He's given very specific and practical commands. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, now finally, here is my final command. In a few minutes, I will say, and in closing, (laughs) or finally, and some of you will say, well, amen, it's about time. Well, this is what Paul does. He's been preaching through this book and he says, finally, my friends, or in closing, and he gives them this final command. And so you know by reading the book of Ephesians that it is extremely practical and I hope you'll find the series to be extremely practical as well. All right, so with that background and just sort of orienting you to the book, let's talk about the things that we need to learn today. Write this down somewhere in your notes. It is to say that, that this text, in this text, Paul teaches us that as a follower of Jesus, our objective is to stand. Would you write that down somewhere? Our objective is to stand. And you see this in verse 11, verse 13, And verse number 14, look at it. Chapter 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. There's the command. Why should I do that? So that you may be able to stand. There's the objective. The command is wear the armor. The reason you are to wear the armor is so that you might stand. He says in verse number 11, put on the whole armor of God that you might stand. Look at verse number 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Paul says, put on the armor that you may stand and when you've done everything else, when everything else has been said and done, at the end of the day, when you come to the end of life, when all has been written, be standing. And then he says in verse number 14, again, this word, stand. Stand therefore, And he begins to describe the armor. Get it clearly, as a follower of Jesus, our objective is to stand. Now when the Bible says that we ought to stand, what does the word mean? The word that Paul uses that's translated stand three times in these verses and another form of that word withstand uh, in verse number 13. He uses a word which means to remain in place. It's the idea of setting your feet 
and not going anywhere. It is to continue or to abide in Christ. It means to remain present with. The word carries the idea of standing or remaining faithful in a covenant relationship. Now, there's probably no better illustration of this than to think about the marriage relationship because the marriage relationship is a covenant relationship. And when, when you and I entered into our, if you're married, when you entered into your covenant marriage relationship, you probably made some promises. You should have. You probably did. And it probably went something like this. For me and Tracy, it was like this. I said, um, I, I was asked by the officiant, the pastor, um, to repeat after him. And, and, and I repeated after him these words. I, Jim, take you, Tracy, to be my wedded wife. And then I said this. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish until death do us part. Those are covenant promises. Now, honestly, sometimes we fail in those covenant promises. Sometimes because of struggles and temptations and, and disappointments and, and unfaithfulness and a thousand things, these marriages don't survive and, and those covenant promises are broken. When that happens, if you've been through it, you know that's extremely painful and difficult. Praise God for his grace and mercy through all of life. Amen? But we come into these, covenant, into these marriages making these covenant relationships. And here's what we're promising. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going anywhere. If we're eating filet mignon every night or if we're scrounging up crumbs, I'm going to scrounge crumbs with you. If it's good or it's bad, I'm going to be there. I'm not going anywhere. If you get sick, I'm going to be with you and take care of you. I have made a promise that I am going to stand in this marriage. That's what the word means. Now, here's the application. We who know Jesus have entered into a covenant relationship with Christ. We have entered into this covenant relationship by faith in his shed blood. Now, Paul says, you're in the covenant relationship, stand in it. Stay in it. You're going to face battles that will lead you astray. You're going to face difficulties and battles which will try to turn your heart away. You, you're going to, to face temptations which will lure you away. Stand in the covenant with Christ. That's the admonition of Paul. And he knew, Paul knew that the people of Ephesus were going to face untold temptations and struggles from the culture, from the community, also from within the church. He knew that there would be false teachers that would arise in the church and that would lead their hearts away. Acts 20, 29, he warned them of that very thing. And because he knew that they would face these temptations, he writes two letters. One is the letter that we have our Bibles open to, Ephesians. The other is 2 Timothy, where he writes to Timothy, their pastor, the Ephesians pastor, about how he should encourage them to stand 
in the faith. I'm going to ask you to turn to a couple of passages really quickly. And uh, so go with me over to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. It's forward in your Bible. Again, if you're just learning your Bible, I know many people are just coming to faith in Christ. You're learning where the books of the Bible are. Just turn forward. You probably won't have to turn more than five or six pages. And you'll be in 2 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy, chapter number 2. Listen to verses 18 and 19. Speaking of some false teachers in the church, he says, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and they overthrow the faith, and they're subverting the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. There's that word, stands. The foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Timothy... I know there have been some false teachers that have arisen, but here's what you need to know. While some people are not standing in the faith, this is the promise that God will stand firm in the covenant. Here's, I want to say this to you today. If you're in a covenant relationship with Jesus, God is going nowhere. Amen? He's going to remain faithful. Now, he calls us to be faithful in that covenant relationship. So Paul writes to Timothy that in the face of of false teaching and subversion of faith that God will remain faithful. Go back to the book of Colossians. Just start back toward Ephesians. You'll you'll be in Colossians. Look at chapter number four. Colossians four, where Paul writes in verse number 12 to the Colossian believers, speaking to them of Epaphras, one of their own. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, he salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Here's what he's praying for you, that you may stand perfect, complete, mature in all the will of God. So he says, there are tempters who will pull you away, but God is going to remain faithful. He will stand. And he says, we're praying for you, and we're praying that you will stand in the faith. And then one other passage I want to show you, go right past the book of Ephesians to 1 Corinthians 15, and then we'll be back in Ephesians 6. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Listen to what Paul writes in verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received. Now watch this. You heard the gospel. You received the gospel. He says in verse 1, And wherein you stand. You're standing in the gospel. He says, I declare to you the gospel which you received. I preach you received and you are standing in it. By the which also, by the gospel, you are saved. If you keep in memory, if you stand in what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. It's just what Paul says. He says to Timothy, tell those people that God is going to stand firm in the covenant. He says to Epaphras, or to the Colossians, Epaphras is praying for you that you will stand. And he says to the Corinthians, when you stand in the gospel, it is the evidence of your genuine salvation. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me, so I'm going to ask it again. If you're listening, shout amen. Amen. Don't miss this. Standing firm in the gospel, standing firm in the covenant does not secure my salvation. I'm not saved by faith, but I'm keeping myself saved by remaining faithful. No, standing firm in the covenant does not secure my salvation. Listen, it proves the genuineness of my salvation. 
The fact that I have believed in the gospel, I am believing in the gospel, and I will continue to believe in the gospel. I have trusted in Christ, I am trusting in Christ, and I will continue to trust in Christ. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says in verse number 13, and having done all to stand. When you've been over the mountains and you've been through the valleys, when you've faced struggles in your marriage, when you've been through, through deep valleys of sickness, when you've lost loved ones, when you've hurt with your kids, when, when the culture is closing in, when the world is going crazy, when it's all said and done and having done all. Stand with Christ. I was talking to one of the guys on our tour in Israel. We were, we were I forgot exactly where we were, somewhere in Jerusalem. We were talking about this, the assurance of salvation. And he said to me, you know, people say all the time, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. He said, I just am afraid to say that. He said, I, you know, it's up to God. I mean, I, I, it's up to God, but I, I'm afraid to say I'm certain I'm going to heaven. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm not afraid to say that. I am certain I'm going to heaven. It's got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with Christ. But I said to him, if I go to hell, I will go to hell trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ for my salvation. I have believed in Jesus. I am believing in Jesus. And I will believe in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's your objective. Stand. Stand faithful in the covenant. Second thing that Paul wants us to know is that our, not only is our objective to stand, but our opponent is the devil. We, we, we have this objective to stand, but there's an enemy. Now, I mentioned earlier that we all face battles in life, internal battles, relational battles, societal battles, all kinds of things. Paul says here that really your battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with people. Really, while it is with ourselves in a very real way, but it is, it is with the enemy who seeks to subvert our souls. What Paul says in verse 11 is that all of these battles, behind them all, there is a spiritual enemy. And his singular goal is to get us to not stand, to give up on Christ and no longer stand. Listen to what he says. I'm back in Ephesians. I'm not there yet. I'm going back to Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to verse number 11, stand therefore having your loins girt about with the truth and the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with, that's verse number 14, verse number 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. And we'll talk about this in the weeks to come. We don't have time to unpack it all today, but he does indicate to us that we are battling with an organized spiritual uh, offensive, that there are principalities and there are powers and there are rulers of darkness and there is spiritual wickedness in high places. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. He also says to us in this passage that this enemy, this opponent that we face, specializes in scheming and deceiving. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, here's an old-fashioned word, it's King James word, the wiles of the devil. You know what the wiles of the devil are? The word means scheming, the schemes. Did you grow up watching Roadrunner? Do you remember Wally Coyote? He was Wally. 
It means he was scheming, he was tricking, he was always trying to find a way to trip up the roadrunner. And I hate to use such an elementary illustration of such a deeply profound truth, but this is Satan's agenda. He specializes in tripping you up in your faith. He lies and he schemes. He lies to us with cultural lies, telling us where we'll find happiness and that this thing of serving Christ is not where, where life is at, that there are better ways to live and better ways to spend your time and energy and money and passions because you can find happiness in the world. He lies to us through people, even through friends, even through Christian friends who sometimes give us Satan's advice. I don't mean they, they're Satan, but I mean they sound like him sometimes in the advice they give. I've said this to you before. Sometimes the dumbest advice you get are from people that are supposed to be your Christian friends. And they're not speaking scripture. They're, they're speaking culture. He lies to us through religious lies. Lying to us about the way that we can live to please God. He specializes in scheming and deceiving. Jesus said he's the father of liars. He's good at it. Number three... The Bible tells us in verse number 13 that these are his days. Look at it, verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. When's the evil day? These are the evil days. These are the days when he has the opportunity. The day that you die, his opportunity to deceive you and draw you from standing is over. When Christ returns, his day is over. Listen, when he's thrown into the pit, are you glad he's going to be thrown into a pit one day for a thousand years? When he's thrown into a pit, it's not his day anymore. It's the day of Christ. But these are the evil days. And so you need the whole armor of God so that you can stand and withstand his lies and his deceiving and his schemes so you can withstand in this day. That you can be faithful in the day that you're living. Hear me, hear me. Satan will use every tool, every scheme that he can concoct, every lie that he can tell you and deceive you with to keep you from standing with Christ. We're in a warfare. And so my question to you is, will you stand? Will you stand? Well, finally, (laughs) Paul says one other thing to us that we need to notice here, and it is that our protection is in the full armor of God. This is, this is the command. This is what he says to us to do, that we ought to put on the full armor of God, that we ought, to, we ought to take unto ourselves the full armor of God, verse 10, 11, verse 13. He says in verse 10, be strong in this warfare. Be strong, but not in yourself. Be strong in the power of his might. Stand in his strength and put on his armor. The word put on means it's an act of the will. You've got to make a choice to put it on. You don't wake up automatically in it every day. Just like I put on my sport coat today. Just like I picked my glasses up off my bedside table and put them on so I could see your pretty faces today. You've got to make a decision to put on the armor of God. And if you'll put it on, then you'll stand in the strength and the might of Christ and be able to stand. So beginning in verse number 13, he says, take on this whole armor of God. Verse number 14, stand therefore having, and he begins to go through the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And we're going to spend the next six weeks thinking about these bits, these pieces of armor so that we can stand. But my challenge to you today is simply this. 
Will you stand in the covenant? Have you made a commitment to Christ that you will stay with him no matter what? And if along the way you've slipped out of that, you've slipped away from him, you've begun to live your own life, you've backslidden, and you're out somewhere living this life, you've trusted in Christ, but you're out there, you say, what do I do? I I, I haven't been being faithful in the covenant. Just come home to him. He's remaining faithful. Remember, the Lord knows those who are his. He'll remain faithful to you. Just come home to him. And if you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you're not in the covenant, do that today. Give your heart to Jesus. Trust his crucifixion and resurrection for your forgiveness and your salvation.